Samuel chapter 8. In fact, we're going to be looking at the entirety of the chapter. This particular chapter is pivotal in the Bible. This is the transition chapter where God changes the mode of government of his people. And it is uh, something I want you to know before we go any further in this reading or in this message or in the remainder of this series. I want you to know that God believes and that God tells us and that God knows and he wants you to know that the very best form of human government is a monarchy. <laughs> when Christ the righteous one rules in righteousness and the government is upon his shoulders there is nothing but peace prosperity, blessing, joy. Everything is right. When all of the enemies have been subdued and made his footstool, and he rules in righteousness, having defeated every enemy of his people, that's the best government. And I want you to know God's moving us toward that moment. That's what preaching the kingdom of God is all about. It's preaching the King, Christ. Now, the Lord, as we see in our understanding of the Bible, is moving us through transitions and phases, teaching us some things, teaching us about our own depravity and our own weakness, showing us the greatness of our enemies, calling upon us to call upon Him, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And today we see one of these major transitions in which God is teaching his people a very valuable lesson about the monarchy. Now, I'm going to read the whole chapter, and if you must be seated in the middle, if it's too much standing, uh, feel free to do so. But I will read quickly, and it's a familiar chapter to us, I think, chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." And the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they also were doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king from him, and he said, these are the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there should be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We saw this scenario 40 years earlier in our story. The judge, the priest, the leader of God's people has grown old and he has two sons. And whereas Eli's sons gave in to gluttony and to avarice, to debauchery, to lust, the sons of Samuel, who you know knew better, gave in principally to avarice. In fact, they moved down to the town of Beersheba, which is on the southern border of Israel. And it was right there on that main highway that goes east and west from the Dead Sea over to the Mediterranean. It goes north-south from Egypt up into the land of Canaan. In other words, it was a crossroads. It was a great place to collect taxes and tariffs and tribute. It was a great place to tax things coming and going. It was a great place to deny admittance into the country and to kind of control things financially from that vantage point. And that's exactly what these two boys did. And the elders of Israel recognized this. You see, God had judged his people and led his people and defended his people when they were a loose confederation of tribes. He had done it beginning with Moses. Moses was a judge and a leader of Israel. He was as well a prophet and with his brother Aaron, a priest. You remember we've said over and over the three offices by which God leads and rules his people is the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. And we've noted over and over how Jesus Christ fulfills each of these offices to its perfection and becomes to us a prophet who brings us the word of God, a priest who makes sacrifice and atonement for us and intercedes for us, and a king who rules over us, who protects us, who defeats our enemies, who provides for us. And Moses and Joshua, and then an assortment of judges across the land for several hundred years, where the people were governed by what's called the Amphictyoni, which is a loose confederation of tribes. God raised up judges, different ones from time to time. And at one point, the people had the same urge. Back in the days of the judges, they had many of them. One of them was a guy by the name of Gideon. We're familiar with Gideon. He's the guy that 
pared his warfare band down to a small group that could actually fight the battle according to the way the Lord wanted him to fight. And he was so successful. And by the way, he ruled in Israel for 40 years, the same number of years Eli did, that Samuel did, that Saul did, that David did. In other words, 40 years, Moses, 40 years was considered in the scriptures the consummate, full lifespan of a reign of a particular judge or a king. And Gideon, at this point, back in Judges 8, we find the story. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. Set up a dynasty. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. Gideon knew the divine plan. He knew that for this season of Israel's existence, God had ordained for them the rulership of the judge and an assortment of judges and not just one single supreme monarch. And the reason was that God was allowing His people to live in a circumstance that was a trial for them, but nevertheless a great opportunity for them. You've often heard, and it's been quoted even in this series, that the summary of the judge's epoch of time was something like this. There was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And for the most part, we interpret that and understand that to mean there was no king in Israel, so there was no overarching authority, and so people were completely rebellious. They were able to do what they wanted to do. They had an independence that moved its way to an anarchy. And that's, of course, what did happen in many cases. But let me suggest another interpretation of that verse for you. There was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. What if a man saw things according to the law of God, which had long been given at Sinai, and he ruled in his home and in his business and in his community in a godly manner, in accordance with the Ten Commandments, in accordance with the Mosaic Law. What if that which was right in his eyes was that which was right in the eyes of God? Wouldn't that not have been a wonderful way in which to live? Free, freedom, independence, no tyrant, no authority over you, but the freedom to worship as you please, to spend your money as you please, to raise your kids as you please, to do anything you need the way you think it ought to be done and the way you are governed is by the law of God. What a great condition of life. By the way, that was the vision of the founding fathers in colonial America, was that there would be a minimum of overarching government and that the people would be free to do that which was right in their own eyes. And even when they had a king, the Lord had specified way back in Deuteronomy through Moses that the way that king should operate. And here's what the Lord said the king should do. And when he sits, this is in Deuteronomy 17, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law 
approved by the Levitical priest. In other words, the king is to make a copy of the law, the Levitical law, the law of Moses, the book of Leviticus and and Exodus and all of that material. The king is to make his own copy, write it out in his own hand and to study it. And it should be approved by the Levitical priest. In other words, it's the orthodoxy of Moses and Aaron. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And his head shall not be lifted up. He shall not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand to the left. So he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. What was God calling upon the king to do? He was calling on the king to live under a written constitution. Inscripturated word of God. That too, by the way, was one of the notions that was in the minds of the founders in the colonies of the United States. Is that whatever sovereign we have, whatever ruler we have, he will not be above a constitution. That the law will be above the prince. And that he will judge and he will fight and he will rule and he would minister according to to the mind of God, the laws of God, the commandments of God. The notion that a people, free and independent, having no king, can live under a constituted authority that is an inscripturated, written word is an interesting idea in civil government. But it's God's idea. That even the king is under God's law. And God rules and God reigns according to his law. And that all people are expected to see and understand and obey and live according to and judge and worship and raise their children and conduct their business and fight their wars according to God's law. Now I'm not making this up. I hesitated to mention this because this might sound a little too pedantic, but I'm going to I'm looking at a pretty sophisticated crowd this morning, I think. But there is a book that was written by a Presbyterian divine who was one of the observers and the counselors at the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s in England. This guy was a Scotsman. He had been writing materials for about 20 years on civil government and how it should be conducted according to the Bible. And he wrote a book with 44 key questions. Things like, should the king be above the law? Where's the ultimate sovereignty of the land? Is it in the people or is it in the king? Is it that God places the king in his authority, by permission, by edict, and all of the complex questions that were in the minds of the people of that day. The guy's name was Samuel Rutherford. The name of the book is Lex Rex, 
the law and the prince, or the law and the king, in which he sorts out and works up the notions of how can you have a government, a civil government, where there's no king, yet where the people do what is right in their eyes, but what they want to do out of their hearts because they are a God-fearing people is they want to obey God's law. And that just the minimal authority, the minimal administration, the least amount of coercion from the top will guide them and guard them in living their life in this manner. Isn't that a beautiful ideal? And let me tell you who studied for 100 years Lex Rex. The men who founded the United States of America from the colonies. That was along with two or three other very important books. Some of their bedtime reading was to read Rutherford, Lex Rex, where he draws out from the scriptures, from Moses and from Joshua and from Samuel and from David and from the prophets and from the Psalms and then from the writings of Christ. All of these measures and means where God's people can be governed if they are a godly people. If the people ever lose the notion that they're under God's law, then that kind of government won't work. <laughs> it won't work at all. If the people become atheistic, idolatrous, self-serving, if they become corrupt and depraved in their sin, if they're given to avarice and greed, if they're not loving their neighbor, and if they're not taking responsibility for themselves and for their own households and their own communities and their own commercial operations and their own defense, then this kind of government won't work. If people are not on the same page morally, and that page is the divine page of the royal law of God, then that kind of government won't work. It just won't work. And what will happen is you will have to have a king. You will have to have someone that will rule over you. You'll have to have some large, powerful government from the top down. And that's the solemn warning that God delivered to Samuel telling Samuel to warn the people. So if you won't follow God's law, if you won't follow inscripturated law, that is a notion of a written constitution, if you won't rule of man and not rule of law, if you're so depraved that what you see that's right in your own eyes is in fact wrong by God's standards, then you can't have God's ideal rule. It just won't work. So God has a provision. And the provision is, he'll let you have what do you want. What do you want? We want a king. We want increased power at the top. We want more dominion. We want more authority, higher up. We're hardwired, I think, to have a king. Look, just look at the office of the presidency of the United States. The President of the United States is the administrator of the federal government in one branch, the executive branch. 
with separation of powers, which are laid out, by the way, in the scriptures, the prophet, priest, and king, the judges, all they had different rules. There was a separation of powers, which is another biblical notion our founding fathers liked and put into our constitution. But if you have a government where the President of the United States begins to accrue the powers, begins to get legislative powers through a giant administrative bureaucracy. And you begin to move war power so that he could make war without the approval of the people. Did you know that's in the scripture? There's a lot of things in the scripture about the debts of the king, that a king cannot go into debt without the consent of his people, and he has to separate between personal debt, that is lavish lifestyle debt, and debt to make war. And I just don't have time. I can get bogged down real quickly, and I'm trying not to. But you you get the point. You see that God has a way of governing and a way of thinking about civil government. And as I mentioned, the president is just one-third of the separation of powers with one-third of the notion of government. Federal government, that's just one-third. State government and local government. So if my math is right, using crude math, the President of the United States should be about one-ninth powerful. About 11% powerful. But yet every time we turn around, everything accrues the President. Most important thing in our society, who's President? What's the election? When can we elect him? When can we impeach him? (laughs) You know, just all kinds of, it all focuses on the man. We tend to gravitate and and surrender powers and give authority to this one man and, and, and our expectations. Now, the one thing that the people did have right when they asked for a king is they knew what the king was supposed to judge. It says in verse 20, it says, Now we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's really the job of the sovereign government, to judge us, that is, give us a justice system, and to defend us, to protect our sovereignty and, and provide for our security. That's really what God ordained uh, government for. It's called the power of the sword. To give a justice system and a defense system. God did not empower nor command the government to be in charge of the health, education, welfare, commerce beyond coinage and a few simple tariffs. We've surrendered that to our governments at all levels, and especially at the federal level. In other words, it's not, it's not working the way that it's supposed to because we're not the kind of people we need to be to have that kind of government. When we deviate from that, when we're not able to live free under God with self-government and self-control, and operate in the power of the Spirit with compassion and mercy and industry and thrift and wisdom and prudence, when we're not able to function like that as a people, when all of our, quote, systems, welfare system, insurance system, educational systems become so godless and out of whack and unjust, We find ourselves in the situation that God warned about. And let me just 
quickly sketch it for you. Notice here over and over it says that the king that you put over you will take. He will take. He will take this, he will take that. That's not God's government. God's government is a government of giving. Lavishing upon his people grace and mercy and prosperity and blessing. God's way of government is a way that brings gifts to his people. Bounty. But not the king, not the sovereign that will be over you. Listen to what he'll do. He will take your sons. First of all, he'll have a large standing army. God's way of providing for the defense of his people was to have a very minimal standing army. A, a general a leadership that was inspired and inquired of God. That was wise and godly. And then to muster the people in what we would think of probably as a militia type force. And they would of course have their weapons and they'd be trained for warfare, but they wouldn't need it till called upon. And when they were mustered to war, they would go out to war with these generals. But not the new king. The new king will have a large standing army, horses, chariots, everything he needs. He will build a giant government bureaucracy. He will confiscate fields and factories. He'll take over the means of production. This large central government, this king, will take your daughters who should be in the home providing for everything needed for the home and the family, supporting their husbands, raising their children, taking care of their elderly parents, and all of these godly works that the help that is meet for man is to do. No, they'll be out in the public sector. They'll be working in the, in the bakeries and in the, in the chemistry labs. They'll be perfumers and cooks and bakers. They'll be part of the support system to the, to the massive bureaucracy. You'll, you'll have to have their support in order for, that, for the society to operate. He will take your fields, vineyards, and orchards. He will take the best that you have. He will take everything that has prospered and done well. He will take that. He will take 10%. That's interesting. That's a tithe. The tithe belongs to the Lord. All of a sudden we've got a king taking a tithe. That's a king that thinks he's God. That's a thing that thinks he's the supreme provider, protector, and provident over his people. That he's a sovereign Lord. He can take the Lord's share. And by the way, it's no wonder that in ancient Canaanite religion... The name given to the gods was Molech, M-L-K as, as it is in the uh, transliterated Hebrew radicals. And the word for king is Melech, just change the vowels. Melech is the king, Molech is the god. What happens when the sovereign government begins to think that it or he is God? And has all the powers and all the prerogatives of divinity. He will take the workers to work for him. It says he'll take your oxen and your donkeys. That's your means of production. In other words, not only will he take what you have, but he'll take his servants from among your people and they will work for him. In other words, pretty soon the public sector of the kingdom will outweigh by far the private sector. More people will be engaged in working for the king and his enterprises 
then we'll be involved working for the people and for their own accumulation of wealth whereby they don't need student loans. They can send their own kids to college with the money that they've saved through the taxes they didn't pay. He will take a tithe of your flocks. Who's supposed to get the tenth of the flock? God. No wonder the Lord says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. You've done a good job as judge. You've, you've been fair and faithful, and from a human standpoint, you've been a good judge, and you've judged long your whole, all your life, and, and you're a good prophet. None of your words ever fell to the ground. You've served me well, Samuel, but it's not you. It's not you. It's me. They're, they don't like me anymore. The reason this people is in this state of depravity, the reason they're moving toward this kind of government, the reason they have this kind of tyrant on their, uh, in their near future is because they have rejected me. And when a society rejects God, that's exactly where it goes. And if you want to see the most tyrannical, oppressive societies in the history of humanity, it's the ones that have rejected the Lord God of Israel the most. And most of them can be seen in the 20th century communist and fascist tyrannies all around the globe in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, South America the whole of humanity has fallen into godless government and that's what the people are calling for here they're calling for a government that God warns them with tears in his eyes and here's the, here's the summary statement you will be his slave Isn't that what God had gone to a lot of trouble to deliver them from? Hadn't they come from Egypt where there was slavery and they were slaves to the Pharaoh? And hadn't God by his mighty hand rescued them from slavery and brought them into the wilderness to serve him and given them his law and taken them to a land of milk and honey where they could enjoy vineyards they didn't plant, live in houses they didn't build, reap crops they didn't sow? abundant blessing beyond all. And they just turned their back on him because they turned their back on God. I can, I can just feel Samuel. He was angry. He was put off. But God was merciful and resigned. Go ahead. Obey their voice, says it three times. Samuel even repeated the words back to the Lord. Did you hear what they said, Lord? <laughs> and Lord, yeah, I heard them. Just go ahead and give them the government they want. Give them what they want. Let them have the oppression and the tyranny. Let them see their weaknesses. When they call to me and they cry out to me, I'm not going to listen. Did you hear that in the text? not going to listen the Lord will not answer you in that day let's don't ever get to that point as a people let's don't ever get to a point where we will have godless people rule over us let us stay in the place where we're under God's authority let us stay in the place where we worship our king 
where we obey our king and where we trust him to the last detail to provide for our needs. There's a key. No wonder Jesus looked at Pilate, little petty potentate dictator, little snot-nosed king, looked at him and said, my kingdom is not of this world. There's a greater kingdom, and the Lord's moving us there, and it's wonderful to think about. He's given us plenty of provision in his, in his good grace, in his common grace over all humanity, a way that we can govern ourselves civilly. But you've got to be civil to have civil government, and you have to be godly to have good government.